Welcome to the Sloth Investor Podcast with your host, Mr. Sloth. The information on this podcast is provided for education and informational purposes only. The information contained in or provided from or through this podcast is not intended to be and does not constitute advice of any kind. Welcome everyone to episode nine of the Sloth Investor Podcast, an investing podcast that explores why I believe the humble sloth is the best animal to characterize successful investing. Once again, I'm joined by my fellow sloth investor and co-host Jay. Jay, how are you? Doing absolutely super fabulous. I'm stoked because uh, it seems like we're getting, uh, we're increasing our listeners, our amount of listeners. So I'm, I'm, I'm stoked to keep on going with this because hopefully it provides some help to some people. That is the key thing. That's one of our key aims. The purpose of this podcast is to really instill those great investing principles, my five bedrock principles, and to enable people to really get started on their investing journey. Absolutely. And I, actually, that's, that's, that's a good segue into today's episode, I think, because this is really leading into how does somebody get started? Mm, absolutely. Absolutely, Jay. So through my conversations with friends and family and work colleagues, it's clear that the best option for many investors is quite simply a low fee, globally diversified ETF. Okay, so that's a phrase I've used again and again throughout our first eight episodes, you know, a low fee, globally diversified ETF. And this is because the majority of these people have told me that they want to invest, but they desire an approach that's ever so simple, okay? They want to really commit to that first bedrock principle of mine, and that's simplicity. They want to invest with minimum effort, with little time, and they don't want it to cost the earth. So Jay, have you had similar experiences with the people in your life that you've spoken to? Is it a case that they've also tended to, fa to favor this investing approach that leans heavily towards simplicity? I would say that actually that's probably the approach for about 95% of the people I come across. So they want something that you, you hear the things like, I don't have the time or I don't have the technical understanding. I don't have the expertise. Um, I don't have the desire to look at how to invest in a single stock. So I just want to invest. I want to invest for my future, but I want to make sure that I'm being smart with my money. Mm. And how can I do that? Absolutely. The important thing is to get started. We mentioned that so often for our first eight episodes, and particularly in episode seven, our Invest in Anti-Models episode, in which we spoke about <sighs> one of those anti-models actually not getting started. Okay, so this podcast series is designed for people in particular who haven't got started on their investing journey, we want to help them because the opportunity cost of not investing is tremendous. All right, so in today's episode, we're going to rewind a little bit and really break down what an ETF is, an ETF, okay? That's a term we've used again and again throughout the first eight episodes, okay? So what the difference is between an ETF and other types of funds, and why we're fans of ETFs at the Sloth Investor Podcast. Okay, so now, firstly, let me explain that the term ETF is an abbreviation for Exchange Traded Fund, okay? So ETF, it's an abbreviation for Exchange Traded Fund. Quite simply, ETFs are collections of stocks, bonds, and or other investment types that you can buy just like you buy an individual company stock. So let's say you're interested in capturing a growth that's taking place amongst the largest, most notable companies in the USA. You could purchase an ETF that tracks the S&P 500 index. But what is the S&P 500 index? Well, the S&P 500 is an index that contains the 500 largest publicly traded US companies, okay? And when we hear the word index, uh, you may likely think of an index at the back of a non-fiction book containing significant and notable words from the book and that, that are organized alphabetically. So likewise, because I think it's a point worth repeating again, the S&P 500 index contains the most significant, most notable companies in the US, i.e. the 500 largest publicly traded companies. Now, fortunately, you don't have to buy all of those stocks individually. That would, of course, be incredibly time-consuming and also a little crazy. 
But if you did want to invest in them, you wanted to invest in those 500 companies. Yeah. There's a way to do that. There's absolutely a way to do that. There sure is, okay? But if you wanted to broadly capture the growth of all of those 500 companies, then you could simply just purchase an S&P 500 ETF. Now, a little later on, we'll explain what the differences are between an ETF and an index, because these are terms that are often used interchangeably by people, particularly within the realm of investing, the investment industry. But for now, a little more on ETFs. ETFs come in all shapes and sizes, such as stocks, bonds, sectors, and commodities. Can I add that when yeah. I was growing up, my... <clears throat> My dad preached mutual fund, mutual fund, yeah. mutual fund. Mm. And so this seems to be a better way to... A mutual fund was a way that you package different companies together so you could buy, essentially make one purchase and have a piece of a whole bunch of different companies mm. and different sectors. Yep. The, the An ETF seems to be almost like what I was growing up with as a mutual fund, but mm. something slightly different and hopefully improved. Absolutely. And we're really blessed, Jay, in the 21st century here in 2021 to have access to low-cost ETFs, okay, and low-cost index funds, which I'll touch on a bit later too. And just the fact that we are able to access these products and they were not available 30, 40, 50 years ago, okay? And so we should be grateful that we have access to such financial products. Okay, so going back to the shapes and sizes of different ETFs, okay? So let me be clear, by sectors, first of all. So by sectors, I mean different industries such as energy, online gaming, financial services, or biotech. And there are many more that I could list. And when I refer to commodities, I mean commodities such as oil, natural gas, gold, silver, copper. And again, this list is not exhaustive. So Jay, mm, let's say a newbie investor, a potential sloth investor, if you will, wants to own a piece of the most prominent companies of the day. Perhaps they use Amazon services themselves. Mm. They buy Apple's products. They have an Instagram account. They see an increasing number of Teslas being driven on the streets. Uh, how can a newbie investor determine whether the ETF that they purchase will contain these very companies? Well, one of the first things that I do for me personally, I go to ETF.com. Mm. Very simple. Um, ETF.com, and you can look up um, various exchange-traded funds um, that you might want to um, inform yourself on, and and then later purchase. One of the and one of the ones on there actually is is one called MGK, which is um, from Vanguard in the United States. And what I really like about MGK, it's the mega growth um, companies, or sorry, uh, mega companies. Mm. And inside of them, the, sorry, mega cap growth ETF, MGK from Vanguard. Mm. And what's great about it is it contains all the companies that you just mentioned. Mm. Um, uh, they hold Apple, they hold Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Tesla, NVIDIA, Visa, PayPal, Home Depot, those are their top 10 holdings inside this exchange trader, which is basically a basket of all these different companies. Uh, uh, you're owning part of that company inside this basket. So to buy an Amazon stock by itself would cost you around 3,500 US dollars. Yeah. To buy an Apple stock uh, or Facebook stock, you know, you're talking hundreds and hundreds of dollars. To buy Microsoft, you're talking hundreds of dollars just for that one individual stock. Mm. What I really like about this is I can own all of those companies and the cost, I think, right now is about $250 US mm. to own a small piece of those companies. Yeah. So I'm personally, I'm a, I, I've been an investor a long time um, for MGK because I had believed um, years and years ago in these mega cap companies. And that's where I parked some of my money as an ETF. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, taking Apple, for example, I mean, what an amazing company that's been over the past 20 years. You know, that's one of the largest publicly traded stocks in the world by market cap. And by market cap, I mean market capitalization, which essentially means what the company's worth. So the stock would correspondingly have a large weight in such a tech ETF that you mentioned, okay, or even in an S&P 500 ETF, you're invariably going to find that the top 10 holdings will be companies such as Apple and Amazon and Facebook and Tesla and so on, because those companies, 
and Microsoft, as you mentioned, Jay, those companies have very large market capitalizations. Essentially, they are the most valuable companies in the world. And correspondingly, as a, as a consequence, they have a large weighting in an S&P 500 ETF or tech ETFs like you mentioned, okay? So, listeners, if you're a regular listener of the Slope Investor podcast, you'll know that for the beginning investor, we typically favor a low-fee, globally diversified ETF. So, in this regard, I'll refer back to the quote that I use in episode one of the Slope Investor podcast, our focus on simplicity, And it's from Jack Bogle, the founder of the Vanguard Investment Group. It's a short quote, but it's one of my favorite investment quotes. Begin quote. Don't look for the needle in the haystack. Just buy the haystack. End quote. Okay, so I'm going to read it again because it's such great advice for a beginner investor. Begin quote. Don't look for the needle in the haystack. Just buy the haystack. End quote. So I absolutely love that quote. I really, really do. You had mentioned previously Mm. about owning the world Mm. and uh, the importance of owning the world. And that was during episode three Mm. um, in our sort of our series of podcasts, the O standing for owning the world. Mm. You mentioned three components of a low-fee globally diversified ETF and they each begin with the letter S. Would you like to explain a bit more about what they are? Sure, Jay, yes. So the beauty of investing in a low-fee, globally diversified ETF or index fund, which I'll come to a little bit later, is the degree of diversification that it provides. Okay, you get so much diversification. Okay, so if we consider three of the core options for how an investor could choose to invest their money in the stock market, they each begin with the letter S. They are one, stocks, two, sectors, three, states. And by states, I mean nation states, i.e. countries. Okay, so a fund such as this, a low-fee, globally diversified ETF provides diversification of stocks, sectors, and nation states. So not only is the fund broadly diversified in their geographic sense, you also get diversification across sectors such as technology, healthcare, financials, telecommunications, utilities, and so on. Now, something key that I want listeners to know is that this isn't a case of J&I simply making things up or just having a guess about your best approach. We don't get together each week and think, oh, what should we say this week? And what's the best advice? No, we really, really have an appreciation for what we have learned from the best investment writers out there, okay? And from our lived experience, okay? So not only do these thoughts that we've uttered so far come from our lived experience as investors, but this appreciation for diversification is also something that's espoused by many of the best contemporary investment writers. So Ben Carlson is one. Ben Carlson has written a fantastic book about investing, and it's called A Wealth of Common Sense, Why Simplicity Beats Complexity in Any Investment Plan. This is what Ben has to say about diversification. Begin quote. Diversification is the best way to admit that you have no idea what's going to happen in the future. It's how you prepare a portfolio for a wide range of future possibilities and admit your own infallibility. Some might consider diversification a form of ignorance, but one of the best ways to minimize risk in a portfolio is to admit, I just don't know what's going to happen. I have no idea which asset class is going to perform the best from year to year. Therefore, I will diversify broadly across the various asset classes, end quote. Likewise, I'm a big fan of a book by Lars Croyer entitled Investing Demystified how to create the best investment portfolio, whatever your risk level. This is what Lars has to say about global diversification. And I apologize in advance, it's a long quote, but it's uh, well worth considering. Begin quote. Some books in investing involve intricate arguments about why certain geographical areas or sectors of the equity markets will outperform and provide a safe haven for the investor. 
On the contrary, the most diversified portfolio you can find offers the greatest protection against regional declines. Also, since we are simply saying buy the world, the product is very simple and should be super cheap. Over the long run, that will matter greatly. The portfolio is as diversified as possible and each dollar invested in the market is presumed equally clever, consistent with what a rational investor believe, believes. Since we are simply saying buying the market as broadly as we can, it's a very simple portfolio to construct and thus very cheap. We don't have to pay anyone to be smart about meet, beating the market. Over time, the cost benefit can make a huge difference. Don't ignore that. This kind of broad-based portfolio is now available to most investors, whereas only a couple of decades ago it was not. The advantage of this development to buy broader-based products. End quote. Now, listeners, I hope you stayed with me there as they were two very lengthy quotes. However, I really wanted to share both of them with you as I wanted to make it clear to you that the investing philosophy of the sloth investor it's a compound creation of all that I've read, watched, listened, and discussed about investing. Fundamentally, therefore, it's a synthesis of everything I have learned about investing, and at its heart is a commitment to simplicity, my first bedrock principle. It is this dedication to simplicity that shapes so much of what we do during the Sloth Investor podcast. Can I actually interject and just yeah. add something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the great companies who were, we, people thought were too big to fail, I think failed because they weren't diversified enough and they had mm. only a single-minded product. Yeah. The things that come to mind are um, Kodak. Yeah. Um, that was a, an example of a company that really failed to sort of be diversified as a company. And when people moved away from film photography, the company had nothing left. Yeah. But when you think about Amazon, they mm. were an online bookstore. Ah. But you think about what they previously offered to what they offer now, that's massive amounts of diversification. And that's a hedge against should the online book sales decline, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden they have all these other streams of revenue. And Google, people think it's just a Google search. And Google has their hands in so many other things. I don't think that the average person understands. And what this offers is a hedge and protection for these companies. Should one avenue or one stream of revenue decline, then they have all these other ways to um, pick up the slack. And it's not too dissimilar, I think, what the what we're trying to preach here, which is an ETF. Mm. Should in your ETF, if you own, for example, MGK, should Apple decline? Well, hopefully Amazon, Tesla, Visa will pick up the slack and offer continued growth for you. Absolutely. And I'm really glad that you picked up on that core concept of diversification because it's such a critical concept to investing. It really is. And earlier on, we spoke about the reason why companies such as Apple and Amazon and Facebook and Tesla and Microsoft, okay, make up such a key part of those ETFs. You're always invariably going to find them within the top 10 holdings of those ETFs. And why? Because over the years, they've diversified or to use an investment term, they've got great optionality. Okay, who could have foreseen Google buying YouTube many years ago now? I think it's around about a decade ago, 2012. I may be wrong, but around about that time period. You mentioned Amazon. Oh my gosh, starting out as an online bookseller, who could have foreseen Amazon Web Services? Okay, AWS, again, amazing optionality. And something that I think many people don't appreciate, even some investors, is how acquisitive these companies are, whether it's Apple or Google. You know, month by month, they're acquiring new companies, they're pushing out, they're diversifying ever more. So yeah, diversification is such a key concept within the realm of investment. It really is. All right, so this inherent belief in simplicity. So going back to that first bedrock principle, and especially the need to broadly diversify one's portfolio stems from several major influences. So we've mentioned Andrew Hallam on numerous occasions during this podcast series, a major advocate of owning a low fee, globally diversified portfolio. Andrew's a Canadian author. Shout out to Canada. Um, I, quoted ben, whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> I quoted Ben Carlson earlier the author of A Wealth of Common Sense. Ben's an American author. Finally, I've just recently quoted Lars Croyer, a Danish author based in London. Three authors from three different places, three successful and accomplished figures 
within the realm of investing and three advocates of a diversified portfolio. Now, I just want to raise one point because it may well be that some people might think, you know what, well, the US, you've mentioned those great American iconic companies for the last decade, Amazon, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix. Oh my gosh, Dave, you could refer to them as the fan companies, okay? They have reaped so many great rewards for investors over the past decade. And it's true. If you've been invested even just within an S&P 500 ETF over the past 10 to 12 years, then you would be a very happy person, a happy investor. So someone might posit, well, you know, Mr. Slove, why not just invest in an S&P 500 ETF? Why do I need to bother with, with other markets? Okay, so again, I'm going to refer here back to Ben Carlson. He's got some great information from A Wealth of Common Sense. Okay, and he, about halfway through the book, talks about a comparison between US stocks and those located in the Pacific region, which would be mostly made up of Japanese companies. And he makes a comparison between two different time periods. Okay, so he mentions the fact that between 1970 to 1989, the return on the US stock market, broadly speaking, was at 9.5%, 9.5%. And for Pacific stocks, and Japanese companies would have made a large proportion of these stocks, 20.5%. Okay, so we can see during that roughly 20-year period, Pacific stocks outperformed, okay? And of course, we can think back to those great Japanese companies that were performing ever so well in their 70s and 80s, all right? Sony comes to mind. Oh my gosh, Nintendo. Absolutely. I feel like growing up in the UK in the 80s and 90s, whenever... My parents wanted to buy anything electronic. Invariably, my dad had a uh, had a real inclination for Sony. So yeah, had to be Sony, right? My the dad, Sony Walkman. Oh my! Ah, oh, iconic, right? My my phone was Sony fanboys. Oh my goodness! There's a <laughs> phrase I didn't think I'd mention in today's episode, but there you go, Sony fanboys. So very much 1970 to 1989, Pacific stocks outperform US US stocks. But if we take a look at 1990 to 2014, okay, Carlson uses this time period. U.S. stocks, the average return, broadly speaking, for the U.S. stock market was 11.5%. And for Pacific stocks, it was 1.4%. 1.4%. Now, that's interesting. Now, if you just look at that rear view mirror, if you look at from 1990 to 2014, even up to 2021, you might be inclined to think, you know what? Well, there you go. There's your proof. You know, U.S. stocks giving me great returns. I'm going to stick to the US stock market. But let's not forget that from 1970 to 1989, Pacific stocks actually outperformed. And I'm not going to outline now all of those companies that we've discussed before, but in, in particular in episode three, we spoke about some great international companies during the episode. And it would be a shame for an investor to, to not consider the fact that innovation isn't just restricted to the US. It isn't just a case that American companies are innovative. We see innovation from every corner of the globe. So the point I really want to stress here is that having a globally diversified portfolio really enables you, okay, to have a role, okay, to participate in the great innovation that we see taking place around the world. It really does indeed. Can I ask you a personal question? Yeah. You keep mentioning low fees. Yeah. We're going to get a bit personal here, folks. Yeah. What do you consider to be a low fee in your portfolio? What, mm. what, what kind of chart? Now, it might show up when you're yeah. looking at a, uh, an ETF. It might show up as a MER, M-E-R, mm. or it might show up as an expense ratio. What, what do you consider for your investment strategy and in your investment portfolio? What would you consider to be a low fee? That's a good point. I mean, fees, the great thing about fees is that they've been coming down more and more amount more throughout the years. And the more investment companies that we see in competition with each other, the more I feel they consider they themselves to be inclined to bring their fees on, okay? So in this sense, competition is good for the retail investor. So personally- What would in, you pay? I, I think I would be looking to pay for a low fee, globally diversified ETF around that 0.25 region. And I think many, I mean, we've we mentioned a VWRL fund before, particularly in episode three, and we're gonna mention, I think a bit later, but that fund, if I'm, I'm right in thinking, is priced at around about 0.22%. So I certainly think, I would say to listeners, if you're looking to invest in a low fee, globally diversified ETF, definitely make sure the fees are below 0.5%. And I'm being quite conservative there because I think nowadays you're gonna find most fees are around that 0.2% region, particularly in the US, perhaps even 0.1%. Now the caveat I would throw in there is that if you are looking 
to inject a little bit more nuance into your investment approach and you're looking to invest in a particular sector, and we're going to discuss this a bit later, then it might well be that you have to pay a little bit more in terms of fees. But I know that's something we'll touch upon a bit later. You know what actually what really kills me is that um, my employer, the the fees um, through our investment broker, um, they're around 0.9 to 0.1, sorry, 0.9 to 1.25. And I look at that and I just, my head just drops like, oh, mm. dear me, yeah. that's a bit high. And, but I should say the, 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 mega, the mega cap stock I talked about earlier, MGK, for example, <laughs> is I believe 0.05% yeah. um, charges. They charge, that's how much they charge you each year to be invested. And if you're an investor or someone like a little more um, risky, um, the ARC, ARK, Kathy Woods, the, the, her investments, their charges, I think, are around 0. 0.75, 0. 0.70%. Mm, yeah. um, so they're a little bit higher, but that's a little more, um, I would, should we say, risque, is that um, yeah. uh, uh, she's considered to be an innovator and a forward thinker, and you'd pay a bit of a premium to be invested in her ETFs. Yeah. And I guess what you're doing, you're paying those fees to leverage the expertise of Kathy and her investment team. Okay. So again, as a, as an investor, you need to wear what's the best approach for you, what route you want to take. And we're going to touch upon that a bit, a little bit later as well. And I want to send a shout out here to Ward. Okay. So Ward is someone that both Jay and I know, and I'm moving from fees to feedback. Okay. A bit of wordplay here from fees to feedback, because we get some feedback from listeners to the podcast. I know Ward listens to podcasts and Ward mentioned, you know, what about the compounding effect of fees? Mm. So we've spoken a lot about compound interest, the wonders of compound interest. But the flip side is that there's also the fact that the compound interest of high fees, all right. And we spoke a lot about this in episode two, our focus on low fees, the second bedrock principle of self investor. And you need to really be cognizant of the fact that if you're paying high fees, those fees are going to compound year over year over year, and they're going to eat into your returns. And it's critical that you, as an investor, turn from sloth to sleuth. Okay, I know I referred <laughs> to this in episode two, but you need to really drill down, go into the weeds of the fees, and really take a look and consider, right, what are the fees I'm paying here? Okay really really important to do that okay because ouch you know high fees have a really disastrous compound effect and it's not going to be good for your portfolio okay so listen out look into the fees that you're paying it's really really important to do so we had a great discussion this week and it was on um what percentage is the u.s in terms of the world investment uh, Mm. market cap and that was a great discussion what what will be the allocations in terms of each country's percentage? What would you What would you say? Mm, that's a great question, Jay. So a globally diversified ETF will give you exposure to companies from countries all over the globe. And in terms of the percentage allocation to specific countries, well, broadly speaking, it's the case that the percentage rep- representation will mirror will parallel that specific country's overall size in the global stock market as a whole. So if we take my home country, the UK, the UK represents about 4% of the world's stock market. And this means accordingly that in most globally diversified ETFs, the UK will represent about 4% of the ETF. We spoke a little bit about Japan earlier. Let's take Japan now. The Japanese stock market represents roughly around 6 to 7% of the world's stock market. So again, when you take a look at the fact sheet for a globally diversified ETF, you'll find an allocation roughly equivalent in size to that. For example, in episode three, I mentioned the Vanguard FTSE All World ETF, which has the ticker symbol VWRL. I recently looked into country allocations for that fund, and it has an allocation of 6.6% to Japan. Finally, as the United States represents the largest slice of the global stock market as a whole, you'll find that this country will represent the largest percentage of a globally diversified ETF. You mentioned before the, you were going to talk about, you're going to touch on the differences between an ETF, an exchange traded fund and an index fund. Mm. They're very similar. And it's, it's, it, there's some quirky differences though. Yeah. Can you I'm, speak to that? Absolutely, Jay. So those terms, an ETF and an index, index fund are often used interchangeably. And that's because they're very similar. 
but there are distinct differences that it's important to know. So let me explain now what the differences are between an ETF and an index fund, as even though they are similar, yeah, it's important to be clear about the differences. They're similar. So first of all, invariably, you'll find that an S&P 500 ETF will hold the same 500 stocks that are contained within the S&P 500 index. That's a key reason why ETFs are sometimes referred to as tracker funds. They simply track the composition of stocks and the underlying performance of their benchmark index. And an example here in Hong Kong is the the tracker fund, and it tracks yeah. the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, the Hong yeah. Kong. Um, so for anybody who might be investing in the, the tracker fund, I think it's 2,800 on the Hong Kong stock market. Mm. Um, that's an example of what you're talking about. It tracks the, the top companies in the uh, Hong Kong stock market. Absolutely. And Vanguard's S&P 500 index fund holds the same 500 stocks that the iShares S&P 500 ETF holds. So in this regard, they're very similar. However, let's move on to differences now. A key difference is that the manner of purchasing an index fund and an ETF differs. You buy index funds directly from a fund company. In contrast, investors purchase ETFs directly from a stock exchange through a brokerage. Also, an ETF trades just like a stock on a stock exchange. And this therefore explains the exchange traded in their name. The price of an ETF will change throughout the trading day, with orders being executed very quickly while the stock market is open for trading. Now, an index fund, on the other hand, is different. An index fund is priced just once a day after the market closes. At that point, any orders placed during a day will be executed. So you mentioned the word broker, and I just want to make sure that the listeners are aware of what a broker is. A broker is that middleman, and it's mm. almost like Airbnb. If yeah. I want to rent a place on Airbnb, I don't contact the owner directly i contact the owner via my broker airbnb and it's not too dissimilar yeah. that if i want to buy um the vanguard vanguard if i go through vanguard as my broker vanguard acts as the intermediary between me and buying and holding those purchases that's a great analogy Jay. that really is a good analogy exactly yeah really good really good now earlier you mentioned simplicity and you mentioned the the nuance and the fact that each and every investor is different. Mm. Um, and my uh, your strategy is different to my strategy. Mm. We have some similarities, but we have some differences. Mm. Let's say that there's an investor that perhaps wants to um, work within a particular industry. They, they've heard that maybe medicals or, or um, uh, that the tech industry is something mm. that they want to invest in. And they feel that it gives them an edge because they might work in that industry, in that mm. particular industry. Um, what... I guess, and I, I, I liken it to my cousin works for Microsoft mm. and <clears throat> perhaps he might have some greater awareness and greater understanding of that industry than I would uh, as an average noob mm. to um, the tech industry. And so he might want to invest in that industry mm. uh, as an example. What advice, what thoughts would you have on someone who has that kind of insight? Yeah, that's a really good question, Jay. And this brings me back to one of my key beliefs about investing. And it's that there's there's no one size fits all approach to investing. It's so critical. I'm going to say again, there is no one size fits all approach to investing. So to go back to my restaurant analogy, I've used a few times throughout previous episodes. We all have different taste palettes. Likewise, as investors, we all have different investment palettes. I like the fact that in terms of the tech world, the phrase IP refers to internet protocol. But I like to think of another IP, and that's the investment palette, meaning the unique palette that all of us as investors bring to the investment table. I know what taste palette I bring to the dinner table. And likewise, it's important for investors to be cognizant of their own investment palette, or in short, their own IP. You talked about Ward earlier, our friend yeah. Ward, and Ward, I know Ward, is he really does like the banking sector. Yeah. And I'm someone who really likes the tech sector. Yeah. Um, we, we both have investment goals and strategies, but his is slightly different to mine because he likes the, the dividends and um, the potential when he invests in the bank industry, but also the stability of the banking industry. Um, for me, I can see potential for the future with the tech 
And so we're both leaning on our strengths yeah. and what we know, but it's a different strategy, exactly what you're talking about. Absolutely. And we often hear this phrase within the realm of investing, what's your SWAN, okay? What's your SWAN strategy? What helps you sleep well at night? Okay, so SWAN is an acronym for sleep well at night. So you need to really consider your investment palette, what makes you sleep well at night? What's your best approach? What do you want to do? So while I fundamentally believe that a broad-based portfolio is a fantastic approach for many investors, I recognize that some people may be keen to go further. They may even feel that they have an edge. Again, let me quote Lars Croyer here, author of Invest and Demystified. This is what he has to say in this regard. Begin quote. You may decide you have an edge in one sector, geographical area, or asset class. That's fine. Do exploit this edge, but invest like a rational investor in the rest of your portfolio. End quote. Similarly, here's a quote from Ben Carlson, author of A Wealth of Common Sense. This is Ben's quote. Begin quote. In finance speak, you can run what is called a core satellite approach and make adjustment, adjustments dependent on your tolerance for risk and being different than the market. End quote. Yet more quotes from these two authors. You know, Joe, I think today's show must be sponsored by Lars and Ben. You know, in, in fact, if we see a spike in their book sales in the coming weeks, then you'll know why. Okay? You guys are not related or anything like no, that, are you? I mean, Jay, full disclaimer, the Sloth Invest has no affiliation to either Lars Croyer or Ben Carlson. I just happen to value their thoughts by investing as I happen to think they're very wise indeed. And not only those two people, but we have no affiliation and no sponsorship or any kind of connection to anybody, but we're just sharing with you absolutely. the people who we really respect and have a lot of time for. Absolutely, okay, absolutely. So if we consider the term edge, that's an interesting term that Lars Croyer has used there, okay? He used that term edge. Jay, let's say someone has read an awful lot about genomics. They know that Jennifer Doudna and her French colleague Emmanuel Carpentier won the 2020 Nobel Prize for Chemistry. They won it for their work in CRISPR technology and gene editing. They've perhaps gone further, this particular investor. They've gone further and read articles within scientific journals. They've poured over official company presentations. They've read information on investment sites such as The Motley Fool and Seeking Alpha. However, they're still not necessarily keen to commit to buying individual stocks because they recognize there's a risk to this in terms of having to be very selective. However, on the other hand, they do want to participate in what they believe will be an inciting area of growth, a promising sector of the market. Such a person could, for example, invest in a genomics ETF. In this regard, diversifying across a range of different genomics companies limits their downside, but also caps their upside. And this ultimately encapsulates the essence of an ETF. If we take a different sector, uh, perhaps someone works within the tech industry and they've become knowledgeable about the growth of semiconductors, but they're overwhelmed by the sheer number of companies within this industry. Again, they want to participate in what they consider to be an exciting area for growth, but they don't have enough knowledge or expertise to pick the winners, if you will. Well, for this person, the best approach may well be to diversify by buying a semiconductors ETF. So again, like you mentioned earlier, Jay, if I go to ETF.com, I can simply type semiconductors into the search box and I get a list of semiconductor ETFs. When I did this as part of the research for this show, the first search result was the iShares Semiconductor ETF, which has the ticker symbol SOXX. That's SOXX. And it gives exposure to the 30 largest US-listed semiconductor companies. Again, let me be clear. This is not financial advice. This is not financial advice. I'm not recommending this fund and neither do I own this fund. I'm simply commenting on how someone could locate an ETF within a particular sector of the market, should they be interested to do so. Jay, what are your thoughts? Well, it's just a tool, right? Yeah. We're, we're just trying to provide you with tools and sort of shortcuts and um, start mechanisms on how, to, how can you get started. If you want to invest in uh, semiconductors, 
Go look up semiconductors on ETF.com and that might give you a broad range of different companies. And you know, you bring up a really good point about semiconductors. I, there's a lot of uh, back and forth out there right now. Um, is now a good time to get into some a company like um, Intel? Is AMD overvalued? Is that becoming a meme stock? And what an ETF does is it might give you exposure to all of those companies, but at the same time, it doesn't overly leverage you in one in particular of one of those companies. But mm. it, uh, just a nice general growth area um, if you will. Exactly, exactly indeed, okay. And again, I just want to go back and reiterate the importance of understanding your own unique IP or investing palette. Understanding your own circle of competence is critical as an investor. You don't need to be an expert on everything. Remember that the first bedrock principle of the slow investor is simplicity. So Jay, I want to circle back briefly to the low fee globally diversified ETF that we talk so much about on this show. Why is it, do you think, that many investment professionals, such as investment advisors, don't always talk about these vehicles? Well, you know, and and this might be a a, a good opportunity to, to, um, I think fees have a lot to do with it. We've Mm -hmm. mentioned fees, but also it might be a good opportunity for us to mention to the the listeners um, about what it means to be, have a, a fund or a basket of different companies that are actively managed or passively managed. And as I was growing up, a mutual fund was the term that everybody used. You need mutual funds when you get older. Mutual funds, that's the way to go. Mutual funds, protect yourself. Mutual funds. What I know now about mutual funds um, is that the fees were actually usually quite high. Hmm. And the potential for growth, was, that gets mitigated. Can you talk maybe a little bit about actively managed funds versus passively managed funds? Mm, Actively managed funds. You're going to find that they're funds where many of the companies are quickly bought and sold. And what we have is investment analysts looking at the quarter returns of particular companies within the fund. If they're not happy, if they don't feel the price, if they don't feel the performance of the company is going to be good in the short term, then without any hesitation, they're probably going to dump that company's shares, look to buy another company's shares. So you got to really think about is, is this the best approach for you? So high fees, high fees are a, a key aspect of many of these actively managed funds. And something I want to go back to is a quote that I use, I believe it was in episode four of the Slave Investor podcast. And that's a quote by uh, Morgan Housel. You know, many years ago, he wrote a great article and he spoke about the tyranny of the calendar. Okay. And it's very much the case that investment analysts look for the short term. They want mm. to really look at how a company is going to perform three months down the line, six months. They look at the quarterly earnings. How have they fared? Well, they've not fared so well. Invariably, it might be the case that the company, they're going to reduce the position or maybe even, you know, sell all of their position, okay? But we have an advantage. We have a distinct advantage of, as retail investors that we have that long-term time horizon, okay? And that's really important to do. The long-term time horizon that isn't necessarily such an attribute of these actively managed funds, okay? Can Re- I give you an example? Yeah, go ahead. So uh, David Gardner this week, and I didn't know this, uh, uh, he was talking about mutual funds. And on average, mutual funds start the year January 1st with about 150 stocks. Mm. And I... I what I found shocking was that he said over the course of the year that those stocks, 70 to 100% of those stocks are traded. Wow. Now, where I come from, that's not investing. Yeah. That, that's, that's sort of short-term guesswork. Yeah. That's trying to guess what the next greatest thing is going to be. And when one yeah. of the mistakes that I learned um, in hindsight is I had a broker previously who was like, oh, we're going to switch you to commodities now. We're going to sell these ones and we're going to switch you to commodities because we think commodities are the next way to go. And... Sure enough, um, that was a massive mistake because not only was this broker charging me fees to um, change my funds and swap them out of one one sector and go to another sector, um, but also he was dead wrong on commodities. This was about six or seven years ago, and um, I missed the boat on tech because I was so focused on commodities. And mm. this was a, a massive mistake. And again, I'm paying these massive fees to swap in and out. And he's trying to guess the either the, the, what's already happened, looking by looking in the rearview mirror. Oh, commodities have already gone up so much. We're going to keep, um, we're going to park some money in there at a really high price right now. Or um, we're guessing that the, that's where it's going to go. Yeah. And that's that's not investing. That's that's uh, guesswork. That's a, almost a lottery in some cases. Absolutely. I mean, none of us have a crystal ball. And I want to really hone in on that term you used a moment ago, switching. Right? We've got to think about if 
these actively managed funds, if a key attribute, a key characteristic of these actively managed funds is the fact that they switch from one company to another, from one commodity, from one sector constantly, well, is it any wonder that they charge such high fees, okay? And I want to bring it back to a great quote from Buffett. I'm going to, I'm paraphrasing here slightly, I'm paraphrasing, but he talks about a bar of soap and what happens when we, you know, the more and more we use a bar of soap, what happens? It gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's akin to investing. What happens the more and more these funds buy and sell and switch from sector to sector, commodity to, mo- to commodity? Well, it's very likely that your returns could be diminished as well. Okay. So lots of switching. I would say lots of high fees. Okay. So you really, really got to uh, consider that. Really, there's a reason why investors such as Andrew Hallam, Lars Croyer, okay, Jack Bogle, okay, JL Collins, the author of um, The Simple Path to Wealth. There's a reason why all of these investment authors advocate a low fee approach, a broadly diversified approach to investing. Okay, really important. So passively managed, passively managed yeah. funds usually have a low fee. So when that, Absolutely. they buy them and they hold them, yeah. if they're passively managed, they're not yeah. actively trading them on a day to day or month to month basis. They're just, they say, this is what we're buying and this is what we're sticking with and we're going to hold it through the ups and downs, mm. generally speaking. That's that. There's that, and there's the beauty in that simplicity, okay? That's the key reason why you don't need to pay high fees for these funds because of the passive approach. The passive, hands-off, couch potato, less is more, whatever phrase you want to use, that, that simple approach to investing reaps dividends and has reaped dividends for so many investors over the years, okay? So a big uh, doff of the hat here to Jack Bogle, the founder of the Vanguard Investment Group, okay? Absolutely. Okay, so we're coming up to the end of episode nine now. But we need to talk about probably not everyone's favorite topic, but something that is grisly nonetheless is taxes. Mm, That's a really good point, Jay. So the Slope Investor Podcast now has listeners in 44 countries. The most recent new listeners coming from Serbia, Peru, and Croatia. So hello to our listeners there and from wherever you're listening. So while it's great to have listeners from so many varied places, it's also important to recognize that investors in each and every country must be aware of the element of taxation that surrounds their investments. This is something that Andrew Hallam, author of Millionaire Expert, has made explicitly clear in his writing. This is what he states in his most recent book entitled Millionaire Expert, How to Build Wealth Living Overseas. Begin quote. Non-Americans buying ETFs off a U.S. stock market could end up paying estate taxes to the U.S. government if the investment holdings exceed 60000 U.S. dollars. Some people living La Vida Loca might enjoy sticking their heirs with an American estate tax, but most expats would prefer to bequeath money to their family, not the U.S. government. End quote. Hallam then goes on to give four examples of S&P 500 ETFs, A common one often cited within the investment community is the State Street Globe Advisors S&P 500 ETF, which has a a ticker symbol SPY. However, this isn't the best choice for expats due to this state tax issue that we just discussed, because this ETF is denominated, is domiciled in the US. Okay, it's domiciled in the US. So for Brits, Canadians, and Australians, there are better choices that would not expose them to this US estate tax liability. For Brits, there's the Vanguard S&P 500 ETF, which has the ticker symbol VUSA or VUSA. For Canadians, there's the Vanguard Canadian S&P 500 ETF, which has the ticker symbol VFV. And for Australians, there's the iShares Australia S&P 500 ETF, which has a ticker symbol IVV. Again, let me be clear. The Sloth Investor podcast has been listened to in 44 countries. Taxation is a complex and constantly evolving concern in just one country, let alone 44. Let alone 44. Mm -hmm. Accordingly, and I am not, and I stress, I am not an expert on taxation. Okay, so let's say we've got someone listening now that wants to get started on their investing journey and they want to begin investing in a low-fee, globally diversified manner. Or perhaps even it's someone that already started their investing journey, but they feel they've been on a wrong path. Uh, what could they do? Well, here's, here are some thoughts. 
someone that Andrew Hannan recommends within his book, The Millionaire Expat, is a gentleman by the name of Mark Zorl. Mark is based in the US, but he's worked with many expatriates, helping them to set up their overseas brokerage account. And the important thing to note is that unlike most financial advisors, he doesn't invest your money for you, okay? He doesn't invest your money for you. Instead, he instructs you how you can do it on your own. So while you have to pay a fee to Mark for this consultation, I actually think for a newbie expert investor, perhaps feeling nervous about getting set up or unsure about the exact funds to buy, this is a fee worth paying. Okay? Actually, and I did this myself when right. I was wow. coming out of my, yeah, so yeah. when I was coming out of my um, situation with my broker who I later found out was um, swindling us, mm. um, I read Millionaire Expat and it mentioned Mark Zorl and it's, he's a fee-based advisor. So we paid, I think it was 96 US dollars. Mm. Um, we did a Zoom with him uh, and he looked at our portfolio and he said, okay, if I were you, I would do this, this, and this. Mm. And I've recommended him to other friends. Um, it was a, a fee that was worth paying because he reaffirmed a lot of what I thought I had figured out and reaffirmed, uh, confirmed a lot of the mistakes that I had made previously with this other broker who was charging us uh, obscene amounts of fees. And uh, I'm glad we found a fee-based advisor. Um, Andrew was great about giving us an example of someone who he mm. would recommend and trust. I would have to agree, for sure. Have to agree, indeed. Okay, so Mark's company is American-based. It's called Plan Vision. And the web address is planvisionmn.com. M for monkey, N for November, planvisionmn.com. I believe he's based in Minnesota. That explains the MN, planvisionmn.com. And Mark's email is markzorro at planvisionmn.com. And let me stress at this point, the Sloth Invest has no affiliation to Mark Zorro, okay? I simply know for a fact that he's spoken to several of my colleagues and he's helped them to get set up with their investing journey. And you just heard from Jay. He's even spoken to Jay as well. Okay. So uh, if you're someone, particularly who's an expat, you're looking to maybe shake things up with how you invest, or maybe even just to get started with your, with your investing journey, then Mark Zor is someone that could give you, um, you know, a good consultation and get you on the right track. A place to start. Yeah, that's for sure. Good starting point. All right, everybody. That's it for our episode today. Hope you've enjoyed it. And we want to thank you, thank you for tuning in. So long, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Take care. We'll see you next episode. For more tips, follow the Sloth Investor on Twitter at Sloth underscore Investor. For more tips, follow the Sloth Investor on Twitter at Sloth underscore Investor.